It's good to see everybody. I hope you have had an incredible, incredible day. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 38, and I want to start with this question. Have you ever quit something? Have you ever given up? Might be something big, may have been something small, but have you ever given up something where you, you know, maybe it was karate and you, you know, decided to quit? Or maybe it was a relationship you gave up on. You know, this week as I was thinking about it, <clears throat> when I was a senior in high school, we were playing in one of our most important tournaments, the Northeast Arkansas Invitational Tournament. It was played at Arkansas State University. We had some college, you know, coaches or scouts there. And we were playing our arch nemesis, nemesis Marmaduke, not the dog, the high school. And uh, at the end of the third quarter, we were down by 10 points. At the end, as, with two minutes left in the fourth quarter, we were down by 10 points. And I must admit, I don't remember much about the game, but I do remember this. I gave up. I looked at the scoreboard, I looked at the time, and I thought there's no way in the world we can win this game. And so I was still on the court, but my intensity wasn't the same. I'd still grab the rebound if it came to me or shoot if I was open, but there just wasn't the same kind of passion because I had already begun to think about what I was going to do with the loss. Now, at the same time, my brother, who's younger than me, was on the team. He was a sophomore, and he was our point guard, and he didn't give up. He stole a couple of passes, and in just a few seconds, we went from 10 points down to 6 points down. And this is before the three-point line was in effect. He and several others didn't give up. And because they didn't give up, we tied the score. Went into three different overtimes, eventually won the game. We played Marmaduke like four times that year in tournament finals and different things. We beat them every time because somewhere along the way they gave up on the idea of beating us. I remember that ball game because I remember what it felt like to give up. Doesn't take much energy to give up, does it? Right? I mean, it's easy. All you got to do is just make a decision. I mean, you can give up on your job. Oh, you still go to work, at least until you find something better, but you've given up. You give up on your marriage and yet still be married, just giving up on that you'll ever be fulfilled. It's so easy just to throw in the towel, just to give up, to surrender the passion, the energy, the effort. And you know what? There's always a good reason. If you're here and you're on the edge of giving up on something, giving up on your marriage, giving up on your dream, giving up on your ministry, giving up on whatever it is, you've got all these good reasons why you need to give up going through your mind. You've thought through why you need to give up at work. They don't care after all, and you've got all these different reasons. You've probably even had people tell you, why do you keep trying? He is never going to change. She is never going to be different. That company doesn't care. After all, look at what they did. In other words, the easiest thing in the world to do is to give up. Now, I want us to look at a story that maybe you've never read before in the Scripture. It's found in Genesis 38, and it talks a lot about one of these. A walking stick, or a staff, you might call it. The Bible refers to a staff quite often. Moses, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Remember, he touched the Red Sea, and it parted. He hit the rock instead of talking to it and got into big trouble with God. Psalm 23 says the Lord is our shepherd. He has a rod and a staff that protect us and guide us. You think about Christmas, it's just around the corner. 
think about the shepherds who carried their staffs or their walking sticks. But the guy that I want us to look at is none of those that I mentioned. It's actually a guy by the name of Judah. And his story, in order to understand it, I want to give you a little bit of context about the story of Judah. If you go to um, Genesis, you find that God made a promise or a covenant with a man by the name of Abraham. And God told Abraham, who didn't have any kids at the time, you're going to be a great nation. That's a pretty big promise. He says, your descendants are going to be as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. He's 100 years old and didn't have any kids. He told them that it is through you, Abraham, the world would be saved. Abraham eventually did have a child. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a brother you may have heard of. His name was Esau. So Abraham begat Isaac, and then Isaac begat a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob would later change his name to Israel. Israel, and he has 12 boys that are born to him. These 12 boys become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become the nation that was prophesied to Abraham. Now, I don't want to list all 12, but it is important if you're going to understand the story of Judah to understand a few of them. The oldest that was born to Jacob, and that's important because the oldest got the birthright, the oldest got the money, the oldest got the land. His name was Reuben. After Reuben came Simeon. After Simeon became Levi. And then fourth is who we're going to look at today. Judah. Judah was fourth in line when it came to the 12 sons of Jacob that eventually became the 12 tribes. Now, there are two more that I want to mention. The youngest and the second to the youngest. The second to the youngest, you may have heard or even read his story before. Anybody know who... Uh, Jacob's second to the youngest son was Joseph. The coat of many colors. Anybody know who Jacob's youngest son was? Benjamin. That is right. Benjamin. Okay. So you got his second to the youngest, his youngest, and then his four oldest. And so that kind of gives us the context in which the story is going to take place. Now it's important for you to know A lot of people, when they think about Scripture, they think about Scripture as a collection of inspirational stories that model the kind of life you need to live. You know who thinks that? People who have never read the Bible. Because the Bible is not a collection of inspirational stories that model the kind of people we need to be. See, the Bible is real. It tells the story of real people. And when I say real people, what do I mean? Screwed up. The Bible is the story of a bunch of screwed up people who are, well, impacted by, who experience the breakthrough of God's grace. The Bible is the story of imperfect people, screwed up people being impacted by God's grace and it transforming their life. It's not inspirational stories about a great people. It's the stories of a great God who gives forgiveness and love and purpose and hope and a future. Judah 
and his staff happened to be just such a story. Now to understand the story of Judah, we have to begin with Joseph. If you go to Genesis chapter 37, it tells the story of Joseph. Joseph was a dreamer. He had all kinds of dreams. And his dreams most of the time were that his brothers would serve him one day. That he would be a great leader. And he told them about it all the time. And guess what? They hated it. Jacob loved Joseph the most. Made him a coat of many colors. Well, one day, the boys are all out working. All of them except for Benjamin. And Jacob asked Joseph to go see what the boys are doing. And when the boys realize that Joseph is alone, they realize this is their opportunity. It's time to get even. We're tired of dad's love of Joseph. We're tired of all Joseph's dreams. So they capture him and they throw him into a pit. And one of the brothers say, you know what? Let's kill him. Let's kill him. He deserves it. I'm tired of it. And the scripture says, Judah spoke up. And Judah says, no. He says, we're not going to kill him. Let's sell him. Let's make a little money on the side. Why kill him? We get nothing. But if we sell him, <laughs> we'll get a whole lot. And that's exactly what they do. Some traders come by. They sell Joseph. And at the end of chapter 37, he is on his way to Egypt. The boys take the coat of many colors, they kill an animal, dip the coat in the blood, rip it up, bring it to dad, Jacob, or you could say Israel, and they say, dad, this is all we found of Joseph. Something killed him. And so, as we begin chapter 38, Judah has sto uh, uh, sold his brother, and he has lied to his dad. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 38. It says, about this time, Judah left home. And I think the reason that he left home is because he was having a hard time dealing with the decision he had made. You ever make a decision that you just try to stop thinking about? Maybe a, a decision that no one else knows about, kind of secretive. Maybe just a few people. And every time you think about it, it makes you feel anxious and it makes you feel nervous. And you're wondering if anybody's going to find out. And it just depresses you or discourages you. I think that's exactly what's going on in the life of Judah. He knows what he did was wrong. But he doesn't know what to do about it. And so he leaves home. He, moved to a, he moves to Adula where he stayed with a man by the name of Hira. Hira is going to become his best bud all through chapter 38. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her, and when he slept with her, well, you can guess what's going to happen. Now, Judah goes to Canaan. Uh, Any time when you look in the scripture and you're reading, just like when you look at the promised land and that it was a reference to your success or your destiny, when you look at Canaan, Canaanites, that is a picture of the world. And when I say the world, I'm not talking about the secularism of the world. I'm talking about the world as the antithesis of God's peace, God's love, God's hope, God's dream. Now, remember, Judah is born into the family of God's people. He has a promise from God that they will be a great nation. That God will do great things. And now he's in Canaan, which is separated from God's dreams, God's peace, God's love, God's hope, God's future. And how did he get there? 
He didn't get there because he was evil. He didn't shake his finger in God's face and say, God, I don't care about you and I hate my dad. No, no, he drifted. He drifted away, and isn't that the way it happens to most of us? You just kind of drift. You didn't one day point your finger in God's hand, face and say, God, I don't care about you. I don't love you. I don't believe. No, you know, you just drifted. And the reason you did is because life is not static. You are not in the same place today as you were last weekend. You are either closer to God or you have drifted further away from him because life's not static. It is always moving. So easy to happen, isn't it? Starts drifting, finds himself distant, not evil, just, you know, just not praying like I used to, not, not attending the house as I used to, not reading his word, I, just not as excited as I used to. And then he sees a woman, gets married, he invests more in this lifestyle away. Now I think Judah thought, one day I'll go back. <laughs> he gets married. And then he has kids. He has three kids uh, exactly. The first one he has is a boy by the name of Ur. All right. And then the second one he has, I think, how do you spell his name? Onan. O-N-A-N. And then the third one he has is Shelah. All right. So he has three boys. He is now totally invested in a land that is distant from God's purpose, God's dreams, God's hope. And I can't help but wonder how many of us unintentionally have drifted to a place where now we are separated from God's dream for your life, God's joy for your life, God's peace for your life, God's hope for your life. That's exactly where Judah is. He's trying to make the best of it. So he finds a wife for her. And the wife that he finds is a lady by the name of Tamar. All right? Tamar is the wife, and she marries Ur. And here's what the scripture says in chapter 38. Ur was wicked. Doesn't tell us how he was wicked. Just says he was wicked. You know what God did? God killed him. So now Tamar is a widow. And according to the culture at that time, it would eventually become a law in the, in the Torah, is that now Onan, because see, they didn't have any kids. So there was no one to hand the birthright down to. So now Onan had to marry Tamar. And when Onan gave Tamar a son, that son would receive the birthright. That son wouldn't be Onan's son, it would be his dead brother Ur's son. He would get the money, he would get the land, he would get the birthright, he would get it all, and Onan would get nothing because it wouldn't be his son. But Onan does what culture tells him. He marries Tamar, but he practices birth control. In other words, he won't give Tamar a son. The scripture says that God is unhappy with that, and do you know what God does? He kills him. So now, both Ur and Onan are dead. Shelah is young, too young to get married. And so, let's see what Judah does. Verse 11, chapter 38. 
Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, you go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. So you go home and live with daddy. And when Shelah gets old enough, well, well, we'll have him come marry you. That's what Judah said, but that's not what Judah was thinking. It says, but Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live at her father's home. What did Judah said? He basically looked at Tamar and he said, don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> right? Now, why did he do that? Because Judah blamed Tamar for the death of his two sons. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, why would he blame Tamar? He, he could blame himself. He's the one that drifted distant from the promises of God. He's the one that drifted into a foreign land. He's the one who married a Canaanite. He's the one who didn't teach his sons about uh, the Lord God. He's the one that found the... I mean, why not blame himself? Or the scripture even says that his boys were the evil ones, but he doesn't. He doesn't take any of the responsibility. Instead, he blames Tamar. And I just thought, isn't that easy to do? You look at where you are. The situation you find yourself in, it's not pleasant. Isn't it easy to blame other people? I mean, if your parents would have just done a better job, if they would have just really cared, if they'd sent you to a better school, if they'd made the same sacrifices that some other... I mean, if your spouse, if you just would have married somebody different, if you would have went to a church that really taught the Bible, if you, it's so easy to blame everybody but yourself. You'd be self-deceived. You run into people like that all the time. Let me tell you the reason I am where I am. The reason I'm unhappy, the reason I've lost my dream, the reason I'm struggling financially, the reason I'm going through a difficult relationship, it's somebody else's fault. That's exactly where Judah was. Not my fault. It's Tamar. See, sin has a way of doing that. It, it has a way of deceiving us to where we can't even see the biggest challenge or reason for our struggle. I, I, I put this in my notes. It's up on the screen. Sin will take you further than you planned on going. <clears throat> when Judah left home that day, he never planned on marrying a Canaanite. Sin will keep you longer than you ever planned on staying. And sin will cost you more than you ever thought that you would have to pay. I mean, do you ever look around and think, how did I get here? Maybe it was just a few months ago. <laughs> How'd I get here? I mean, now you're in South Florida, and if you look back a few years, you're just like, how, how did this happen? How did I find myself in such a difficult, challenged, painful place? I think Judah asked that same question. Well, Tamar realizes as Shayla gets older, that Judah has nothing, he, this is not going to happen. He, he's not going to have Shayla marry her. She's going to be a widow. And in the time in which the Old Testament was written, a widow was not a good thing to be. It, it's amazing. If you read through the Old and New Testament, you know what you'll discover. How many times does it say that we're to take care of the widows? See, because the widows had no hope of integrating into society. 
They had no money. They had no land. They had no rights. And so Tamar realizes that she's in a really bad situation. That Judah is not going to keep his word. He's not going to do what he said. And then something happens. Judah's wife dies. And Tamar determines that Judah's going to do what he's always done. It happens to be sheep shearing season. Would you say that with me? Sheep shearing. Now say it five times real fast. It's sheep shearing season, and that means that Judah's going to go into town. And when he goes into town, he's going to be looking for love in all the wrong places. And so Tamar takes off her clothes of widowhood, and she puts on the clothes of a prostitute. And she goes and she sits at the city gate. And if we look at verse 15, we'll see what happens. It says, Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and he propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said. He didn't really have a good first move, okay? <clears throat> Effective, but not very romantic. Not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat? In other words, she's not... She doesn't know whether or not he'll keep his word. Uh, yeah, we'll have sex and then I'll be left without anything. Well, what kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal, your cord, and your walking stick. This was usually tied together, so you had the cord and the seal. In other words, it's kind of like the driver's license or the social security card. She says, you leave that with me so that I can be confident that you'll bring the goat. Look what happens. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse worth her, and she became what? Isn't that the way it always happens? She becomes pregnant. Of course, now Judah doesn't know this. He goes home, tells his good buddy Hira. He says, you know, uh, you know that girl you pointed out to me? Well, we made the the deal so can you take her the goat and get back my walking stick my staff Ira goes but he can't find the prostitute he can't find Tamar she's left Ira comes back and tells Judah says Judah I, I can't find her and here's what Judah says he says just forget about it I'd be the laughing stock if we keep trying to find her just forget about her you, you ever find yourself in one of those positions where you're just kind of let's just forget about it and hopefully Nobody will ever find out. A week passes, a month passes, and, you, and nobody said anything, and you're kind of like, I think we're safe, honey. Nobody's going to find out. The only problem was Tamar was pregnant, and you can't hide that forever. And at three months, she begins to show. And I want you to see what happens. It says in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told Tamar... Your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute. And now, because she did, she's pregnant. And I want you to see the hypocrisy. Judah says, bring her out and what? Let her be burned. This is a horrific way in which to die. It's not the way Jews normally did capital punishment. They normally did it by stoning. But Judah's angry because she's the reason. It's his opportunity to get rid of her. 
He's blaming her for all the bad things that's ever happened in his life. And this is his chance. And he's got a good reason, right? She's pregnant after all. It's against the law. It's sin. It's wrong. This is his chance to get even. Such hypocrisy. You ever wonder how people do what they do? You ever watch the news and wonder, how do the folks at ISIS look at another human being and just cut off their head? How do the Nazis do what they do? Or even turn on the news and see the violence that happens in our own community. How parents can abuse a child or a man can rape a woman. I mean, how do they do that? The scripture tells us in the book of Romans that when we disobey God, when we drift, what happens when you drift? What, what's happened in your life when you've drifted? God nudges your heart, doesn't he? He calls you back. He brings conviction into your life. He says, you come back. Come back to where my joy is. Come back to where my peace is. Come back to where your future is. Come back to where your destiny, your success, your hope. He draws you back. But Romans tells us that if you and I continue to say no, we continue to be deceived about what our really problem is. We continue to blame others. We continue to blame our work. We continue to bring our family, our spouse, our kids, our parents, our church, our, our even God. It says in Romans that God will eventually, and here's the phrase, will give them over to. In other words, God will eventually say, oh, you want to do your own thing? Go ahead. And he will no longer bring conviction. He will no longer tap you on the shoulder. He will no longer remind you of his love, his dream, his purpose, his passion, his success for you. No, no, you do what you want to do. And the scripture says that our heart gets darker and harder until we no longer even sense. And Romans 1 says that it affects the way in which we think because now we've been given over to it. Free, without any restraint to do what we want. That's why one of the most dangerous things in the world any of us can do is to say no to God. Because every time we do, our heart becomes a little darker, it becomes a little harder. So eventually there is that moment when we will forever be self-deceived. Or we will recognize the truth. Well, Judah says, bring her out, we're going to burn her. And they go and they grab her. They're about to light the fuse. Look what happens in verse 25. But as they were talking, as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Can you imagine what Judah was thinking in that moment? Right? All of a sudden he is presented with his walking stick, with his seal. And Tamar is like, the one who owns these, <laughs> he's the daddy. Now here's the question. The question is, will he recognize it? Or will he continue to be deceived? Because he has the power to deny it. He could have rejected. He could have continued to deceive himself into believing that he wasn't the one at fault. But let's look and see what he says. She says, look closely 
whose, and the word whose there carries the idea, do you recognize the seal and the cord and the walking stick? Will you be self-aware, Judah? Will you stop blaming others? He is confronted with the truth. And the question is, is, is he going to have a spiritual awakening? This is the most important moment in Judah's life. Because should he remain in his self-deception, he is going to step up off the cliff into, into darkness. We all have these moments in our lives. These important moments when the truth is in front of us. And the question is, will you and I continue to be self-deceived? Will we continue to blame others? Will we continue to give our justifications and our reasons? Or will we recognize the truth? That's the question. Will you recognize your fingerprints on the walking stick? That's exactly where Judah is. Look what the scripture says. Judah recognized them immediately. And he said, she is more righteous than I am. Now he's not saying that what she did wasn't wrong. What he is saying is that what he did was. Because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. Judah is faced with the truth. And in order to recognize it, what does he have to do? What does it take to repent? The word repent means a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. For him to no longer blame or to be self-deceived, but to say, yes, those are my fingerprints. That is my staff. What must he do? What does the scripture tell us? It tells us that he must humble himself. And for human beings, humility is one of the most difficult postures in which to find ourselves. Because humility no longer blames anyone. See, humility recognizes that the darkness is within my own heart. The hardness is within my own heart. It's not your fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not society's fault. It's not anyone else's fault. It is in me. I am the one with the hardened heart. My fingerprints on the walking stick. Now, the world will never applaud humility or repentance. The world will never say, see, Judah knew that for the rest of his life he would be mocked, he'd be laughed at, that he gave in, he admitted <laughs> what weakness they would say. Those moments when you're confronted with the truth and you have to decide what you're going to do. You can't get away from him, can you? He couldn't put it off. He couldn't say, next week, give me a call, give me a ring. No, no, he had to deal with it in that moment, as do you and I. Now, we do know that Judah's transformation, Judah's repentance was real. And the way in which we know, we have to go back to the story of Joseph. Remember where Joseph was? He was in Egypt. It's an incredible story. I encourage you to read it. When we come back to it in chapter 44, Joseph through much difficulty of always making the right decision. Joseph ran from sexual temptation. Joseph always had the right attitude. Joseph always had the right mindset. Joseph never drifted. He always did the right thing. And as a result, through much difficulty, but as a result, he is now the most, second most powerful man in the world. Because he is the second most powerful man in Egypt, which is the most powerful nation in the world. Because they have food when the rest of the world is going through a famine. 
Jacob knows there's nothing to eat. He gets the 12 boys together and he says, guys, I've heard there's food in Egypt. And he sends his 12 boys. Well, he sends 10, I guess. And there, through much circumstances, they have to take Benjamin. And, and Jacob's kind of like, well, I don't, I've already lost Joseph. I don't want the youngest to go. And they're like, we'll take care of him. And so they all go to Egypt looking for food. They find themselves before Joseph, although they do not know it's Joseph. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph works through a bunch of different uh, situations. And then he looks at the boys and he says, you know what, guys? He says, you guys can go home, but Benjamin's going to stay. The one thing that none of them wanted, especially Jacob or Israel, none of them wanted was for Benjamin. And now Joseph asks or demands that Benjamin will stay. And I want you to see Judah's response. It's found in chapter 44, verse 30. It says, and now, my Lord, this is Judah speaking to, he doesn't know it's Joseph. He just knows it's a powerful Egyptian. He says, and now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy, without Benjamin. Our father's life is bound up in that boy, Benjamin's life. If he sees the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. That's not the Judah we've read about in the last few moments, is it? That's not the same Judah that sold his brother, lied to his dad, slept with his daughter-in-law, and was about to burn her to death. This is a man who has experienced a complete transformation because of his willingness to no longer be self-deceived and to recognize the truth. Changed him. He humbles himself before Joseph and he says, let me stay. But let Benjamin go. And it brought me to this thing, how do we know when we truly experienced a transformation? How do we know when we have experienced a, a, a spiritual change or repentance as opposed to just, we got fired up. What are the evidence of transformation? Well, here's what we know. It's not just saying that you're a Christ follower. Because the Bible says even demons know there's a God and declare it. It's not a feeling. It's not that feeling that we get in worship sometimes when we close our eyes or we raise our hands and we feel a warmth, we feel a power, we feel a strength. That is not evidence of transformation. Inspiration can do that. But the problem with inspiration is when you walk out those doors, it doesn't last. Discouragement is quickly upon your heels. Frustration and fear and anger quickly follow behind. It's not even blessing. Blessing is not evidence of true repentance, true, true change, true transformation. That's not what we see in Judah's life. What is it that we see? How do we know that Judah was truly changed? Well, we know he did two things. He was willing to sacrificially serve. Sacrificially serve. 
He didn't think about it. He didn't say, well, let me think, what should we do? He didn't argue. He simply sacrificially was willing to serve his brothers by staying and being the slave. And so if we were to get real practical, can I ask you a question? Who's the last person you served? When's the last time you weren't thinking about yourself? When's the last time that the gold wasn't how it affected you? And what you hope to get out of it. And what you hope to receive. No, when's the last time that you sacrificially, humbly were willing to serve someone other than yourself? When's the last time when you were willing to sacrifice? When you were willing to generously give of your time, your resources, your skills, and your energy? Not putting it off to later. Not having a good reason why you can't right now. Why someone else should do what you can. No. When's the last time that you sacrificially served because there was that moment in your life when the truth was revealed? And the question was, will you recognize it? Will you stop blaming others? Will you stop giving justifications? Will you stop putting it off into the future? And will we recognize the truth? Will we see our own fingerprints? They've changed Judah. You get to the end of Judah's life, or not the end of Judah's life, but the end of Jacob's life. And he calls the boys in, and he starts to tell them their blessing. He kind of prophesies over him. And I want, I want you to see what he says about Judah, because it's quite amazing. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All your relatives will bow down before you, Judah, my son. He's a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, he dare, who dares to rouse him? What, what, what was Jacob saying? He was saying, Judah, in the present, you are powerful. You are successful. It's not who Judah started out to be. But because he had the courage to humbly recognize the truth, it's who he had become. In the present, he was a success. In the presence. He was powerful. But dad didn't stop there. He begins to talk about Judah's legacy. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants. Now, what is, what is he saying? He's saying that it is through the lineage of Judah that King David will come. Pretty powerful legacy, isn't it? And you think about all that Judah had done wrong. And his dad looks at him and he says, Judah, you need to understand that one day when our people have a king, he will come from your lineage. It will be your legacy, Judah. But he doesn't stop there. He pushes on a little further. And he says, until the coming of the one who brings to the one whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Who, who's he talking about there? talking about Jesus I mean wouldn't you think that the lineage would have come through Joseph that Jesus's earthly lineage would have come through the one who made every good decision who rose to the highest of power in Egypt who ran away from sexual temptation 
But no. It comes through Judas. The lineage of Jesus' earthly lineage comes through Judah. The one who sold his brother, lied to his dad, moved to Canaan, didn't teach his kids, had sex with his daughter-in-law, and eventually tried to murder her. It is through him, Jesus says. And I think that what Jesus is proclaiming to all of us down through the ages is, listen, it's not too late. That as long as our lungs take in air, as long as that our heart is beating, no matter where we may find ourselves today, it is not too late to become who it is that God has created us to be. Is that your destiny is still within reach. Your purpose can still be accomplished. Your success can still be claimed. But what it does come down to is that moment when you and I will decide that we will recognize or we will continue to be deceived. It's your choice, isn't it? My choice. And so as I was praying about that this week, I thought, you know what, I, I want us to end our time differently, maybe than in any time that I've been here. We're going to do what we have done. We're going to sing in a moment give an invitation but then we're going to turn these steps over here maybe these chairs here at the front same over on this side we're going to turn them into what when I was growing up in church they called an altar in other words a place in which you go to do business with God so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and, and if you're here and you've drifted no, it's not that you're evil, it's just you drifted. In other words, you, you're, you're not as close to God today as you once were. You don't read his word as much as you once did. You're not as faithful to his house as you once were. You don't have the same passion that you once did, the same excitement that you once did. You've, you've drifted. Maybe not far. Will you continue to be self-deceived? Or will you recognize the truth? Maybe others of us would look and say, you know, I, I don't know how I got here. It's not where I intended on being. It's not, I don't know how I got here. Will you recognize? Will you humble yourself before him? See, that's the reason that I ask you to come and to kneel. Because there's, a humility in this position. And that's what God calls us to. He calls us to humble ourselves, as I call you in just a moment, to come and to humble yourself. Getting out of your chair is a humbling experience, not in my presence, but it's me humbling myself before him. It is me recognizing and no longer being self-deceived. Invite you in a moment to come and to kneel to do your business with God and once that you do just to go back to your seat because it's not between you and me we'll have some pastors that are going to go ahead and come and if you'd like to pray with them they would be more than glad to pray with you but my invitation is whether you're there on the balcony or whether you're on the front of the back is to come and to kneel and to do business with God this is your moment 
and you will do something with the truth. You will recognize it or you will deny it, but it will lead you in one direction or the other. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would humble my heart. I pray, God, that we would no longer justify or self-deceive. I pray that we would recognize whatever it is that you have shown us on this day. I pray, God, for the courage to humble ourselves before you. We need more than just inspiration, God. We need, we need transformation. We need something real. Might we experience what Judah did? Might we be changed in the same way? God, do something in this moment that glorifies you. whether you're in the balcony or on the floor. You do whatever God nudged your heart in Jesus' name. Let's stand and let's sing.